Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be looking at our response to God's revelation. You know, God has revealed himself through the scriptures, and it begs a response. It demands and commands a response from us. And we're to respond with our whole being, the Bible says, with our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see here these verses known as the Shema, which means to hear in Hebrew. And these verses are a command of God. And they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then Jesus adds to this verse when he was asked by his disciples what the greatest commandment was. He adds something to this verse. He says, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Jesus adds that all your mind, and I think that's very important because we can see those things encompass our entire being, heart, soul, strength, and mind. God has revealed himself to us as a holy, eternal God. And he also demands a response. Loving him with our entire being. That verse in Luke 10.27 I'm going to kind of unpack that today and take a look at what biblical love should look like. Our love for God needs to be based on the Bible, not on our own opinions. Our concept of love can come from a lot of different places. Much of the world that has to say about love comes from entertainment, maybe movies or television, music, etc. And the artists claim that they are reflecting the culture. I believe that they are influencing the culture, not reflecting it. But God's ways are not our ways. And we're going to jump in here to the first part, the heart. It says in Luke 10, 27, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart. The word heart occurs over a thousand times in the Bible. It's the most common anthropological term in the scriptures. It denotes a person's center for the physical, emotional, intellectual, and moral activities. And it's the vigor and sense of physical life. So if you have a heart, it's spoken of not only in the physical, but also in that sense of vigor. You do things with your whole heart. And it's the center and seat of spiritual life. It's that part of us that can worship the Lord, can relate to the Lord. The soul or the mind. And you'll see as we go through each four of these things that they kind of inter 
connect with one another. It's interesting that the word heart, it kind of covers every aspect of a person's character. So really, when the Bible says we're to love God with our whole heart, it's saying to love God with our whole being, with everything within us, we're to love the Lord. Of course, we know the, the heart is that center of physical activity, the organ that pumps blood throughout the body. But it's also the center for hidden emotional, intellectual, and moral activity. Man looks at the outward appearance, it says in the Bible. In 1 Samuel, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Men can only see the amount of our hearts that we're willing to show them. The rest is hidden, but God can see all of our hearts. He knows the nature of our hearts. He knows the motivation behind what we do. And our hearts encompass all different emotions, feelings, passions, and desires that we experience. So the heart's emotional functions, it reflects and reveals our emotions, joy, Love, peace, humility, faith, and selflessness. All those beautiful characteristics of our heart. But it also reveals some other things. It reveals the unpleasant side of our emotions. Sorrow, hate, violence, pride, doubt, and self-interest. The heart reveals all of that. It also shows us our wishes and desires. And these, those can be for good or for evil. Proverbs 23.17 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. You know, sometimes we see people who, who are, are engaged in immoral or even illegal activities and we think they get away with it. And we kind of envy them. You know, they're having fun and they're going about like there's nothing, nothing wrong and, and there's no problems in their life. And sometimes as believers, we struggle with our relationship with the Lord because we want to do well. We want to live righteous lives. And we see people who don't know the Lord kind of living as if there were no problems. And there could be envy there. That's one desire that our heart can have. But it says in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. So as we incline ourselves to God, as we respond to the revelation of the Lord that's in the Scriptures, as we delight ourselves in the Lord, then He will give us the desires of our heart. What that means is that the desires of our heart will kind of shift they'll shift from self-centeredness. They'll shift from wickedness and they'll shift toward righteousness and selflessness and giving. It says in the scriptures there'll be a day of reckoning 
to see what the motivation of our hearts were. It says in 1 Corinthians, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. You know, like I said before, people can only see the amount of our heart that we're willing to show them. But God sees the innermost things. And our heart will follow the thing that we put the most value on, won't it? It says in Luke 12, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you consider the most valuable thing? What do you consider the most important, the priority thing in your life? Your heart will follow that. Your heart will go along with that. So these are choices that we make. Because there's a problem with our heart, isn't there? It will tend toward self-centeredness. It will tend toward sin. It says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the only one who could know our heart, the depths of our heart, is the Lord. We can put on a facade. We can fool a lot of people. But God knows the deep down intents of our heart. So in order to love God, and by extension love others, in a biblical way, we need a new heart. And only God can regenerate our hearts so that it's predisposed more toward Him and less toward ourselves. It says in Ezekiel 26, this promise of God that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take out that heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You know, we need hearts that are pliable, that can be molded by God. Well, we need to be willing to allow Him to do that work. We make choices, and we can cultivate our hearts with prayer and with Bible study, and our hearts will turn toward God. We're encouraged by the Scriptures to guard our hearts, to put a hedge of protection around our hearts, so that the things of the world that would tend to lead us away from the Lord will not influence us. And the heart is that center of intellectual and spiritual function. It says in Matthew 9, 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? See, evil is conceived inside before it's manifested to whatever actions that we take. But when wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you, understanding will keep you. That's guarding our hearts from the things of the world that will come in and take us away from the Lord. When our hearts are darkened, we choose evil. When they're enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we choose good. And we can love God the way He desires for us to love and commands us to love. It says in Romans 121, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. There's an intellectual knowledge of God. 
that many people have. But there's a very long distance between the brain and the heart. It only seems like it's about 12 inches. But for many people, that's a, a distance that's never traveled. It's here. They knew God, but they didn't glorify Him as God. They believed that there was a God, but there was something missing that they did not worship Him and their hearts became darkened. It says in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you and the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. Paul was praying for the Ephesian church that the eyes of their heart would be open, that they would see God who He really was, and that they would then understand the calling on their life to love the Lord with all of their hearts. That commandment of Jesus to love the Lord God with all your heart, we see that there are things that we can intentionally do to fulfill that commandment. It's a deliberate commitment to devotion to God. So we see here, love the Lord God with all your heart. We see now the next piece of this. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and all your soul. The Old Testament word for soul is nephesh. It appears 755 times in the Old Testament. King James uses 42 different English terms to translate it. And again, as I mentioned before, we see a crossover of these terms. Sometimes it's actually translated soul. Sometimes it's translated life. The Bible gives us some understanding of this entity known as the human soul. It says in Psalm 31, 9, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. So here the psalmist is saying that the soul can experience things, experience grief. And we know that sometimes it affects us physically, when there's sorrow or trouble in our life. But we know there's something deeper that it seems to affect. It gives us an idea that it's somewhat separate. This soul entity, it's separate from the physical. That it's the part of the human being that lasts for all eternity, even after the physical experience experiences death. It says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. There's a separation here of physical and soul, of the body and the soul. We know that the real person is not the physical. We know there's something deeper that is the real human being that we know and that we love. We see again this separation. In Hebrews 
4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So we, hear, we see here soul, spirit, and heart all used in the same verse. And what can divide those things? What comes in and cuts and shows us the true person that we are? That's the Word of God. When you hear the Word preached, when you read the Bible on your own, sometimes there's a conviction that enters into your heart, into your soul, that starts to stir things up inside you. The soul is that part that connects us to God, similar to the spirit in the sense that it has a deeper and more God-centered aspect to it. And we know that the soul is, seems to be that central part of the human being. The body is only the shell. The body is only that vehicle which carries the real and true essence of the person, their soul. When the Apostle Paul preached on Pentecost, I mean Peter preached on Pentecost, the church was just getting established. They needed to understand these things. The Lord moved among the people gathered so that although they were there physically, yes, something also occurred within their souls which restored them to a right relationship with God. In Acts 2.41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That speaks of souls in in the sense of, of a person. But I think it also speaks to the fact that there's something deeper that they responded to. 3,000 people responded to the word of God being preached that day. It wasn't just a physical response. It was something deeper than that. In the New Testament, we see the counterpart to that word nephes, and it's psyche. So this sounds a little more familiar to probably a lot of you. It's translated that way 600 times, actually, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Psyche can also be used to express emotions such as grief, anguish, exaltation, and pleasure. It's also that in which there is life. Living being is a soul. It's the seed of feelings, desires, affections, aversions. And the human soul is that by the right use of the aids offered to it by God, can attain its highest end and secure eternal blessedness. The soul, regarded as a moral being designed for everlasting life, it's that response. We see God revealed in the scriptures, and we respond to that. It can express emotions similar to the heart. Matthew 26, 38 says, Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Jesus expressed that emotion of sorrow. John 12, 27 says, Now my soul is troubled. 
What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus, in the deepest uh, parts of his being, in anguish before he went to the cross, for you and for I, his soul was troubled. There was something deep going on inside of him. We see here a fuller picture of how God wants us to love him, a total commitment of our entire being that should be offered to the Lord. So we're going to segue here from soul to strength. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Hebrew word for strength here is from the root kazak, to fasten upon, to seize, to be strong and courageous. I love that as believers we can seize upon the strength of God. He will empower us to love the way He designed us to love, devoted and uncompromising. Where does our strength come from? It says in Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He's the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And in Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then in Joshua 10.25, Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Notice how every single time someone is encouraged to be strong and courageous, it's not of themselves. It's the power that we tap into when we seize upon the strength of the Lord. When we try to accomplish anything in our own strength, we won't accomplish all of the great things that He wants to do through us and in us. In Greek, the word for strength is very interesting. It's trans, uh, translated dynamis or dunamis. And what does that sound like? You can call out. Dynamite? Dynamic? Now you know Greek. <laughs> so it does. It sounds like dynamic. That's where we get the word dynamite or dynamic from. That Greek word for strength. And in Acts 1.8, it says, You will receive power, dunamis, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Where do we receive our power to go out into this world and to do any good thing for the Lord? From the Holy Spirit. That's where we get our strength from. We get strength, power, ability, power for performing miracles in that first century church especially. Moral power and excellence of soul comes from the Lord, the strength of God. Power and resources arising from numbers 
and consisting in or resting upon armies, forces, or hosts. I love those last two definitions. Because when we depend on the Lord's strength and not our own, we have an army on our side. We have strength in numbers. It's awesome to realize that when we are weak, when we depend on and seize upon the strength of the Lord, we are really strong. And we have the means to achieve all that He asks and commands us and leads us to achieve in this world. The Apostle Paul knew this well. When he was struggling and going through difficulties and trials, in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, he, he writes, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. Is that where any of us are? Do we have needs? Do we have infirmities? Do we feel weak? Paul was there. He writes, For when I am weak, then I am strong. He was strong in the Lord. Ephesians 6.10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. And then Paul goes on to mention all those, uh, the armor of God that we need to put on to go out into this world to do anything of value and significance for Him. 2 Timothy 2.1 says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When we gain our strength from God and not ourselves, uh, we, we experience the full power that He wants to give us. And then we make a conscious choice. You know, we need to make that choice to lay down our will, to submit to His will, and admit that we are weak, that we cannot on our own accomplish those things. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul had to come to the end of himself in order to realize that it was only through the strength that he found in his relationship with Christ that he would be able to overcome difficulties and trials. In order to love God fully with our entire being, we need to rely on the strength that is in an abiding relationship with Christ. That verse in Ephesians 6 tells us that we can overcome the attacks of the enemy who wants to distract us and divert us from full devotion to God. And we need to be mindful of the grace that we've received so that we can be strong to live out the life God has planned for us. We need to be mindful all the time of what God has done for us or else we'll become weak. Recalling that grace gives us the strength to move on into what He has for us. And you know this verse in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our strength comes from the Lord. We're going to move on to the last part of that verse that Jesus, sort of the addition that Jesus made to that verse on how to love God with our entire being, and that's with our mind. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The mind or reason, that part of the human being in which 
takes thoughts take place and perception and decisions to do good or evil are formed and expressed. We're expected to use our minds in our relationship with the Lord. Some people assume that Christians leave their brains outside the church doors. But we're expected to reason in what we do for the Lord. That word for mind is the same word that's used for soul. So you can again see the interaction between all of these words. It's the entire being. In Job, when Job was interrogating God, and you have to call it an interrogation, concerning the calamity that came upon him and his family, God answered Job, kind of sarcastically, and said there was wisdom that man had to understand certain things, but not the wisdom to understand everything. And even the wisdom that we have comes from God. Who has put the wisdom into the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? God is sort of pleading his case here to Job. Before that, he says, who's created this whole universe? Who are you questioning, Job? When we go through difficult things, when we have trials in our life, are we to question God? He gives us wisdom. He gives us a mind to think and to reason. The psalmist, feeling confident in his righteousness, challenged God to examine his mind and see if he was an upright man. Examine me, O Lord, it says in Psalm 26, too, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. So we see they, these terms interact in some way, but they are also separate in some way. We know the mind is that seat of reason. And it says in Isaiah 26, and I love this verse, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Have you ever noticed when our minds go astray, when our minds start wandering into doubt and disbelief, that we lose our peace? But when we stay focused on God, we sense the peace of God in our lives, that peace which passes all understanding. We cannot love God with our entire being without knowing and experiencing the peace of God. It's not possible. And we're told in Romans that we should be renewing our mind. It says in Romans 12, too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul here is speaking of the difference between someone who's influenced by the world and someone who is influenced by God. We are always being shaped and molded by something, by the things we take in. And those can be the things of the world which we will conform to eventually. We will look exactly like the world as believers. Or we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And God becomes our partner in that. It's not something we do alone. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. I love this. 
You have the mind of God working on your side in partnership to understand these things. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red as crimson, they shall be as wool. How beautiful that is. That when we don't understand things, God wants to reason together with us. The idea that our sins can be put away and forgiven is sometimes difficult to comprehend. The idea that He will cleanse us and forgive us is very hard sometimes to understand, but God will help us. We'll reason together with Him, with His Holy Spirit. One thing is required for us to understand spiritual things, and that is to be filled with the Spirit of God who reveals the things that we can't otherwise know. It says the natural man in 1 Corinthians 2 does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, but they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So we see here that there are some things that in our minds we can't comprehend unless we are filled with God's Holy Spirit unless we tap into that knowledge that he wants to give to us to understand spiritual things. And we see the coming together of all of these aspects of the person, the heart, the soul, the strength, and the mind, in order to fully understand, in order to fully love and serve the Lord. But it's a choice we make. Because we can have a mind of unbelief, says in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. See, we can have this mind that God does not exist. We can have this mind of unbelief that God does not matter. That he has no you know, interaction with us. That I can put him away and only take him out a few times a year. That's a mind of unbelief. It's a condition of foolishness because you don't acknowledge God. The mind of the one who doesn't know God is in a state of futility and shame. And it exists because of a refusal, of a, of a choice to not acknowledge Him for who He is. It's hostile to God. Even if you never think of God, your mind is hostile towards Him. But the good news is that our minds can be renewed. Our minds can be changed. The Apostle Paul tells us that this state of mind is a result of submitting themselves to the God of this age, this mind of unbelief, instead of the one true God. He goes on and gives a, more of a description here in 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for those who have the mind of unbelief, who choose not to acknowledge God, they won't see it. It'll be veiled to them. That good news won't make sense to people. Because the, mind of, the minds of those people, the God of this age has blinded. You know, there's a spiritual battle for your mind, 
for your entire being. But there's a spiritual battle that the enemy wants to take you away from God, that wants to blind you to the things of God. Lest the gospel, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Being enlightened by God's word, taking it in and believing it, is the mind of belief. When we willingly submit our minds to the God of this age, the God of this world, we do so in direct opposition to the light of the gospel. We do it in darkness. It says in John 3.19, and this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It says in the scriptures that we are condemned already because we do not believe. But we can move from darkness into light. We can be changed and have a mind of belief. We can have the mind of Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There's a way out of that condemnation. That's a choice to accept and obey God and then to love God with all of our being. The mind of the Christian is described in terms of a correct understanding of the things and the plans of God. It's a worldview that's in harmony with God's will. And it's a mind of belief. The human mind and our choices play a major role in responding to God. And Jesus supports the relevance of this when he adds mind to that verse. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with your mind. Understanding occurs in the mind, so it's not surprising that Paul implies that it's with the mind, not the flesh, that God is served. You know, God knows our, knows our motives. It's not all the things we do, but where is our mind? Where is our heart? Where is our soul when we do those things? It involves a complete commitment to Him. Loving the Lord with our entire being, with everything that we have. It also gives us an understanding that apart from ourselves, because remember we need to tap in, we need to seize upon the strength that's in the Lord, left to our own devices, we'll tend away from God, not toward God. We need to stay connected to Him. It says in John 15 that we are to abide in Him. That we are the branches that take the strength out of that root that is Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God and the commandment to love Him with our entire being can only be sustained with a deliberate choice. That choice involves a commitment to the Lord and then a commitment to a continued relationship with Him. Our love for God requires our willingness to act 
think and decide with our heart, soul, strength, and mind to follow God. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Let me tell you.